I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to part two of this week's Clash of the Titles, the podcast that pits two movies with lots in common in a fight to the death to see which one comes out victorious. On Monday's episode, we spent 48 hours with Eddie Murphy in San Francisco, and today we're following him from the mean streets of Detroit to the sun-kissed boulevards of Beverly Hills for the movie that made him a megastar. Yes, it's 1984's A Beverly Hills Cop. What were you doing in California anyway? I was working. Working where? Beverly Hills. What's <laughs> up? Hey, Mikey. Well, you don't mind if I ask around a little bit, do you? Don't do a damn thing. Stay out of this. So which film in this Murphy melee will be victorious? We'll have a winner at the end of this very show, so let's get it on. Welcome to Clash of the Titles. Hello, Clash Butters. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Chris Tilly. And welcome then, once again, no Victoria. Um, It's getting better. Uh, Her lawyers have spoken to our lawyers, and it seems that we've reached a kind of compromise. There's a few disputes about pay. Um, I mean, she's worth a lot, but I mean, there's a you've got to put a cap on these things. Otherwise, it's like then, you know, everyone's wage goes up and, you know, we're, we're a cottage industry and podcasting. It ain't easy. So I think she's um, she's swinging for the fences. But I think the, 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 there's light at the end of the tunnel, guys. So, uh, you know, touch wood, she'll be back, um, if not next week or the week after, maybe the one after that. Um, you know, these things take time. But uh, thanks for bearing with us. Uh, so welcome to part two of 48 Hours versus Beverly Hills Cop. Before we get into this episode, it's time for another dip into the digital mailbag and a review from one of you read by Chris Tilly, a.k.a. a Chris Thrilly. Yeah, and if you are a new listener, we've got a lot of new listeners lately. We've had tweets, do, do, do review. Mm. I like new ones. Yeah, and if you uh, are a new listener... we running out. <laughs> if you are a new listener, um, it's it's mostly just us two from here on in. So uh, so th- there's only ever been us two on the show. So you don't, need, don't, don't listen to any previous episodes because uh, 
Just awful. Are you trying to <laughs> get beaten up? <laughs> She's going to kill you. <laughs> she's not. She loves. She loves it. I can tell wherever she is in the in the world. She's uh, she's uh, she's getting a right kick out of this, aren't you? Aren't you, V? You're going to get a right kicking. So this review comes from Calderwell, who says best pod ever. Wow! I can't tell you how much I love this podcast. I love Vicky's summaries, Vicky and Alex going off piste, and Chris trying to rein them in. Alex and Alex going off piste. Yeah, me going off piste. <laughs> I frequently look like a loon behind the wheel as I'm crying with laughter. One of my favourites was Alex winding Vicky up with the No, It's The War of the Worlds. <laughs> oh, oh, maybe we do need her back just for moments like that. That was a good moment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, please don't stop ever. Please carry on the quiz and please keep up the excellent film trivia. Interesting and funny. Oh, Thank you. Five stars. Thank you very much. That was very kind of you. All right, then. Let's get into this. On Monday, Nolte and Murphy. Today, Murphy. What a difference two years makes. Let me take you on a journey. Axel Foley's friend Mikey gets murders because he's an idiot. He steals from Victor Maitland, which is an insane thing to do. Have you seen Victor? He's basically, if Hannibal Lecter, dressed like the Death Star. But sure, Mikey's an idiot, but he is Axel's friend. So Axel's off to Beverly Hills. Cue an entire fish-out-of-water first act of Streetwise Cop in perfect police precinct that Demolition Man would borrow wholesale later before Foley tries to prove Victor's a wrong'un through some serious sleuthing, which involves visiting 17 different warehouses and a lot of conversations about coffee. Just when you expect the final act to be set in a warehouse, no, the film mixes things up and sets it in the mansion from the end of Commando and has millionaire Victor decide that rather than have his lawyer handle this cop that's harassing him outside of his jurisdiction, he'll open fire on the Beverly Hills PD, thus 100% becoming a criminal. Then he dies. Clash Brothers, for your consideration. Beverly Hills Cop. So when did you first see this, Chris? Uh, same as Monday. Recorded off the telly, lots of bleeps. But yeah, I mean, in the mid-80s, we were obsessed with Eddie Murphy. Mm. I don't think he was my number one. I would say my number one was Steve Martin. Okay. Followed by Chevy Chase. Right. And Eddie Murphy was my number three. Because I don't know, all the swearing did my head in, and I was a bit frightened of him. I think oh. he was—he was too cool, and he wasn't—he wasn't as silly as the others. Do you, do you know who in the eighties uh, desperately wanted to be Axel Foley? I, I know this because I interviewed him, and no. I was like, oh, he picked a movie. It was when I used to do a Sean Sky called The Guest List, where it was basically Desert Island Discs, but with movies. Where a star came on and picked their five favorite movies, and yep. we talked about why. And this guy came on and picked Beverly Hills Cop, and I was like, why have you picked Beverly Hills Cop? And he's like, because in the eighties. The one person I wanted to be more than anyone else in the world was Axel Foley. Who? Tom Hardy. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Axel Foley was his idol in the 80s. Tom Hardy not known for comedy. No, I guess. He did that comedy with Chris Pine. Oh, my God. This is war. (laughs) Jesus Christ. No, it was This Is Poor. (laughs) There you go. That's why you do what you do. That's why you do what you do. I know exactly where I was when I saw this movie. Because uh, I used to sometimes uh, get left on my own with my best friend, um, television. And I was in Hunstanton on the north coast of Norfolk, or Hunston to the locals, in my great uncle's house. And I was left in the kitchen. And he had a TV in the kitchen, which already blew my fucking mind. A TV in the kitchen? Hmm. And everyone else was doing something in another room, watching something else. And this came on and I was on my own in the kitchen. I was like, no one knows what I'm watching. And I just sort of sat 
agog at the screen. Like it was just like watching something that I'd never seen mm. before. I'd never seen Eddie Murphy before. The opening and the back of the truck, the cigarette deal, this guy, the energy on screen. And then if I wasn't already sold, an opening car chase that smacks of Smokey and the Bandit. I was like, this is mm. my everything. And that's the moment I fell in love with Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And this was, you know, a seismic event in the world of film, wasn't it? It was huge. I mean, this made more money than Ghostbusters in America. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think I sort of, I found a couple of different statistics and I went, oh, statistics. Uh, The highest grossing movie globally in 1984. I think domestically it was. I think Ghostbusters took it globally. Okay. But it definitely outgrossed it in America. Well, they were the one and two movies, yeah, but it was a a huge movie and it was the highest grossing R-rated movie until 2003. This remained the highest grossing R-rated movie, not just for inflation, till 2003, uh, which was The Matrix Reloaded. Mm. That's a long stint as it the really highest is. grossing R-rated movie. Mm. I'll, I'll tell you a bit about the uh, the making of this movie because it's very, very interesting. A lot of what I've got um, comes from the wonderful uh, book, High Concept, all about the life of that genius bad boy, Mm. was Don Simpson. Alex and I are big fans of that book. <laughs> it's a great book. If you've not read High it's, Concept, you're looking for a present yeah, for someone who likes yeah. movies, that's the book. It's a template for how to lead your life, isn't it? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I'm, I'm in the Days of Thunder chapter at the moment and it's uh, <laughs> it's already starting to get a little dark. I, can I also say, I didn't say this on Monday, but I've got a lot of my quotes today and Monday from Nick Assemblian's book as well, Wild and Crazy Guys, which mm. has got some great stuff on both of these movies. Yes, yes. And his new book, Last Action Heroes, oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, right then. So, we'll come to the ongoing dispute at the very end of this section about who actually came up with the idea for Beverly Hills Cop. But our story starts in 1977 with Don Simpson and Michael Eisner in a room at Paramount with a screenwriter called Danilo Back, who was hot property at this point because <laughs> Warners had just paid a lot of money for a script of his called Horse Opera, <laughs> uh, which would unfortunately never get made. Uh, and I didn't look up anything about it because I don't think the truth will be as good as what I imagine a movie called Horse Opera is about. Uh, I mean, it's got to be about horses doing opera, right? That If it's not, pitch that tomorrow. <laughs> Horse Opera. It's actually, I did look it up because I was like, oh, uh. people will want to know. It's... um. Slang for a Western, so I imagine it was some kind of Western, which is boring. Horses doing opera, please. So back tells Simpson, uh, tells it, uh, that Simpson pitched him the vaguest, and I do mean the vaguest of ideas about a cop from East L.A. Mm. who goes to Beverly Hills, L.A., and turns it upside down trying to solve a case. Already... You know, I mean, unless you're an L.A. resident, that means nothing globally. No, but the point was it was a Hispanic cop. So it was it was someone who wasn't white entering that police department. And he said it was he wanted a combination of Dirty Harry, Shampoo and Chinatown, which is very ambitious. Yeah. And Danilo back walked out going, he just started sort of naming movies at me (laughs) and he walked out. But (sighs) bad news, things aren't happening with horse opera. So back decides, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. He decides to come up with an idea based on what Simpson said. So he moves the cop to an East Coast city. A lot of this is still in the final movie and he creates the smooth-talking bad guy, the murder of a friend, and he writes a script at that point called Beverly Drive. And I love the fact that he changed the name of the character from Ellie Axel to Axel Ellie. (laughs) Brilliant genius. Give him a writing credit. Uh, Do you like the fact that the villain is called Daglish? 
Yeah, yeah. but spelt differently, I think, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Uh, but the main thing at this point is it ain't a comedy. It is a serious, Dirty Harry-style action movie. Uh, it does... Uh, it sounds uh, good. Uh, the, the villain of the movie, back described, was Beverly Hills itself, a place full of all the privileges that insulate people but ultimately bring havoc on those not as well off, which I don't think is in the final movie, but I think is a really interesting idea. No, I think we get quite a different thing in the finished film where we see Axel bonding with all the people sort of behind the scenes, mm. the workers in Beverly Hills. Yeah. You know, the villains are the rich people, but actually you see his working class roots. Everyone, he's, he's really nice to all the people that are working at the hotels or work, not everyone no, working no, in the no, warehouses. Not, no, I don't think that's entirely true because he's, you know, he, he, you know, he calls out... He suggests that the young girl on reception is a racist and then he makes a poor security guard, threatens his job and everything. So I think, you know... But the, uh, like, Damon Wayans character and the waiter who does the thing, he sort of winks at them and he gives them tips and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Either way, Simpson and Eisner, they bloody love this script. Uh, Back does a couple more drafts and then he moves on. Simpson brings in new writers and ultimately, according to Don Simpson, the script went through 37 drafts before it was ready for screen and for Murphy to then improv 90% of it. (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, an Academy Award nomination for best screenplay for a film that was improvised. (laughs) Madness. Eddie Murphy did not get that nomination. (laughs) Despite making the making the movie up, they reckon that on one of those scripts there might have been a typo because the film was called Beverly Hills Cops. Really? Yeah, and they, they put it down to a typo that it was, and, and it just stuck. Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> uh, so. 1983, when things changed after Simpson hired a new writer called Daniel Petrie to write a draft. He'd later write Turner and Hooch and direct Toy Soldiers. Uh, So Daniel Petrie. Uh, While he was doing his rewrite, Paramount were busy looking for a star based on the script as was and approached Mickey Rourke and paid him $400,000 not to take any other movie while this rewrite was going Such on. Such easy money. Yeah, because it expired. The rewrite hadn't been done. Mickey Rourke pockets $400,000 for doing fuck all. Fuck all. And as we know, that's nearly one and a half million dollars now. one and a half million dollars. <laughs> exactly. And so Petrie finishes his draft and he's nailed it because Axel Ellie is now funny. It's a funny funny script. So (laughs) Simpsons producing partner Jerry Bruckheimer obviously pitches the new funny script to Eddie Murphy uh, when he bumps into him and Eddie is interested. Unfortunately by the time Simpson and Bruckheimer pitch Murphy to Paramount Paramount have already got someone else in the picture. A man by the name of Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, from the sounds of it, he he just had it in his contract that he had first refusal on every project that came through Paramount. Mm. And they just thought he wouldn't be interested and they were stunned when he said yes. Well, he was interested in the idea of a movie with Sylvester Stallone in. He didn't much like the script. He took all the humour out of the script and started rewriting it himself. And he makes the action bigger and bigger way beyond the budget that Paramount were initially thinking. He also, interesting, interesting 80s action fans, he changes the lead character's name to Axel Cabretti. He's the Cobra of Motor City. (laughs) Yeah, so basically, he is writing Cobra at this point. Uh, Michael Tandino becomes Cobra's brother. Jenny Summers is the love interest. Billy dies halfway through. 
Here's what Sly said of his version of the script in 2013. It looked like the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan on the beaches of Normandy. Believe it or not, why wouldn't we? The finale was me driving a stolen Lamborghini, playing chicken with an oncoming freight train, being driven by the ultra-slimy bad guy. Believe it or not, it's... I mean, it's not that far-fetched. No, no. Believe it or not, all right, go for it. We've got a $14 million budget. He wrote a $20 million movie. (laughs) Believe it or not, I was writing a... (laughs) Riding a giant chicken to the moon, and the moon was the bad guy. All right, that's good. That's when you say, believe it or not, Sly, you driving a fast car at a train. That no. just feels like a day at the office. So It's weird, that thing about him asking Martin Scorsese to direct it. Is that true? I, I don't know. I just... It's in books, but it's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, I wasn't sure. Uh, anyway, they managed to get Sly off the project. So many different versions of this mm. story. So many... Yeah, but the one the one where I saw video interviews with the producers was the nice one where they said to him, they gave him an ultimatum, shoot the original script mm-hmm. or you can take everything you've changed and use it elsewhere. In Cobra. Yeah, and so that's that's where Cobra came yeah. from. Are you a Cobra fan? I, I've never seen it. I, mm. I don't quite know why, but I think it's probably why it was a flop because... For some reason, like, I watched the trailer. The trailer was on multiple VHSs I rented in the 80s. I saw the video cover with him with a gun with a laser sight, which I don't know should, in theory, make me want to watch it. Yeah. And yet there was absolutely no part of my teenage brain that was like, I need to see Cobra. I think it was the matchstick in his mouth. I think <laughs> I, even I, as a teenager, was like, twat. Oh, you didn't think he was going to set fire to his mouth? You weren't worried. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. no, that's the ending. Is it? No. Oh, um, the stubble. He catches it on his stubble and it just goes up uh, on his cologne. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the nice version. Uh, the other version is obviously he was more interested in making Rhinestone. Uh, more on that on a future episode, perhaps. Mm. Uh, but Don Simpson claimed to get Sly off the project, he managed uh, to bump the star to the top of the two-year waiting list for his special facial rejuvenation doctor in Switzerland who was experimenting with injecting sheep hormones to improve your facial chemescence and that Sly flew to Switzerland to get the treatment, paving the way for Eddie Murphy. Mm. Doesn't really make that much sense. True or not, it's the best version. I think Sylvester Stallone could probably fly back if he wants to make the movie. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how well, long maybe, it takes. Yeah, maybe if his face is all undone. Experiment, experimental sheep hormones. God, the eighties. Anyway. Eddie Murphy steps in and the rest is history. Paramount greenlights a sequel before it's even released based on a screening on the lot where the head of the studio said, this is going to be bigger than Ghostbusters, which it was. And then we're back to where I said we'd begin. So many people claim this was their idea. So Michael Eisner. And Don Simpson uh, used to trade blows in interviews about this. Eisner said, It was a paramount project we gave to Simpson and Bruckheimer. I love that Don takes credit for everything because it shows what a great appetite he has. Simpson then said in an interview, Michael is the best, but he's also given to hyperbole. It pains me if he forgets what happened. But we'll leave the last <laughs> word to Joel Silver. 
who reckons the scene from his film 48 Hours where Murphy borrows Nolte's badge in the Redneck Bar was where the idea came from. He said, Beverly Hills Cop was pretty great, but it was really just 48 hours without Nick Nolte and they did steal Reggie Hammond. I'd agree with that. Yeah, so would I. I mean, as we discussed on Monday, you see that scene, you go, yeah, let's put that in a movie and let's that the whole thing be that. that yeah, let's that, make that, that the works. movie. Yeah, uh, like you said, I didn't even realise the script got nominated for an Oscar, uh, and uh, the score, Harold Faltermeyer's iconic XLF, nominated for a BAFTA for best score. Good. Yeah. I mean, brilliant. Mm. I'm, su- I'm, su- I'm surprised. It's a great score. Great score. All right, then, let's talk about this movie. <sighs> Glenn Frey. The heat is on. Already into this. Yeah, already into this. Yeah, as Judge Reinhold says on the on a on a more recent documentary about it. Uh, once that song is done, you're ready to be entertained. Of course you are. Yeah, of course. You and are. actually, the soundtrack all the way through this is absolutely spot on, monumental. You know, because you get these jukebox soundtracks where they take a bunch of songs that people recognise, but here it's telling the story. It all makes sense. It's all sunshine. It's all pop music. It's just great. Also. Um, it's it's interesting, I think, the difference in, in the space of two years that we've gone from Eddie Murphy beneath Nick Nolte in the opening credits to this is in association with Eddie, Eddie Murphy, Murphy Productions. Productions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I noticed that. Lovely. Two years. Two years. Uh, so we get all these uh, GVs of rundown Detroit scene setters, the poverty on the streets, uh, the rundown dilapidated areas of Detroit. Martin Bress, the director and the crew, actually had to be escorted by police around all these locations to film these people. Are and you going to slag get... off Detroit again? I'm not actually. <laughs> no, they had. To, they, this is this is this is fact. This is in print. They uh, they went around these locations. They had to then get the people they filmed to sign release forms to say, yeah, you can use my image in the film and. To be doing that, they were escorted by Detroit police officers, except there were parts where the police went, we can't go Mm. there, it's too dangerous. You're going to need Robocop. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to go and do it on their own. There were housing projects and stuff that the police were like, it will be more trouble if we go in there. So if you want that that shot, off you pop. So it's it's great. I didn't, I, I, I thought it might happen. But at this point, I was like, I hope they juxtapose that against Beverly Hills later. And they definitely do. You've got two opening scenes, effectively. Mm. So this whole cigarette deal, like I said, my first experience watching Eddie Murphy, and I just, I immediately just, something about his energy, I knew I was watching something special. The Smoking the Bandit truck chase. Great. I'd love to see Stallone hanging off the back of that truck like a rag doll, like Eddie Murphy does. <laughs> that would have been amazing. I just punched the truck. But we've got Neutron Dance by Pointer Sisters, which comes back a few times in the film. Mm. That's like a, a sort of a mini theme for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, I mentioned Martin Brestab. Uh, not a rumour. Sounds like a rumour. True. He flipped a coin. He wasn't sure whether he wanted to do this. Mm. Brookheimer and Simpson kept pestering. He kept declining. Took his phone off the hook. Eventually, Brookheimer persisted. Simpson had gone off to do other things, let's say, at this point. But Brookheimer was still on at Martin Breast. And he, in, the, in, in the end, he flipped a coin. A, a coin that he then, after the film, uh, became number one across the world. He had framed and hung in his office. So, Paul Reiser turns up. 
<laughs> this is where I was. This is the start of my confusion, uh, which happens frequently uh, during uh, this uh, sit down of Beverly Hills Cop, where I thought I was watching Beverly Hills Cop 2. I thought Paul Reiser was in this loads driving a Ferrari around Detroit, dealing no. with phone calls from Axel Foley, no. trying to cover for him. That's yep. a different movie. No. Beverly Hills Cop 2 specifically. But he does get one good line here where he says, this isn't my, this locker. Is my locker. It's really funny. Isn't it? Yeah. That's it doing is. a lot with a little. Oh, I'd seen Aliens by this point, so I did sort of go... Uh-oh, there's Burke. Because you know when you're a kid, yeah, yeah. and the minute the first role you see someone in, it's like it takes a long time but to see But also, weren't you watching My Two Dads by this point? I never watched My Two Dads. Oh, uh, he's yeah. America's half-dad. So I hear... So well, I have a whole dad, surely, if there's two of them. Who was the other guy? He played the Greg, saxophone. Greg Evigan. That's right. Yeah. Oh, maybe I have seen it, yeah. <laughs> the one I don't know. Uh, right then. Uh <laughs> we get a setup here from uh, Inspector Todd. So Gilbert R. Hill, real life, mm. a real life Detroit homicide detective. I who... went down a Gilbert R. Hill rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, he became the inspector in charge of the homicide division mm. in Detroit in 1982. Uh, he rose to a national attention for his ability to obtain confessions out of the most notorious killers, which sounds frightening. Terrifying. I don't know what he's up to. And he is to. scary. He's really scary. The inspiration for Eddie Murphy having his gun in the back of his jeans came from Gilbert R. Hill, a.k.a. Inspector Todd. That's how he carried his. He ran for the mayor of Detroit. Lost, uh, he um... lost, but he became the president of the Detroit City Council. So, yeah, he made three movies. Mm. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 1, 2 and 3. And he could have had a career. I mean, he is great in this movie. Oh, my God. But, yeah, he had, he had bigger fish to fry. Yeah, he did. Uh, we get some nice setup here from uh, the conversation he has in the locker room with Axel. Uh, one, Axel does things his way, takes an initiative, but breaks rules. Two, more importantly, he got one last chance and he's fired. Oh, yeah. One last Out on chance. the street. It's 11 minutes into Beverly Hills Cop. What should we have now? Ooh. How about Harold Faltermeyer's Axel F? Oh. Mm. Originally, this song was just known as Banana Tailpipe Song because it was only written for that sequence where he puts the bananas at the tailpipe. They heard it. They were like, that's brilliant. That works. Let's use it everywhere. Let's turn well, it into the score. To be fair, though, Faltermeyer himself said that he, was, he wanted a theme for Axel to drive the story mm. and it to play whenever Axel was getting up to mischief. And so his inspirations were the Pink Panther theme and the Third Man theme. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, every time Axel's up to something, we hear Axel F. It's such a brilliant piece of music, and I don't think it's heard in Beverly Hills Cop 2. It's a major kidding? problem. If it is, it's not in it much. It's a major problem with that film. I mean... Not a lot of problems with that film. It's still a very, very good film. And so his mate Mikey comes to see him with some Deutschmark bonds. Plot, plot, plot. <laughs> Barrow, but what Barrow bonds? Yeah. It's like the annual trading places. I don't know what's going on. It's fine. Um, he shouldn't have them. We get that very quickly. He's been in Beverly Hills. He was a security guard for Jenny Summers. Uh, he covered for uh, Axel when they stole a car because he loves him. They're real friends. I think Simpson Brookheimer wants some of this love cut down. And I think it was in the end because people started to find it funny, these two guys telling each other how much they loved each other in screenings. And that wasn't really the intention. It was meant to be heartfelt, not hilarious. Well, no, um, Axel Foley is, is clearly a gay man. Is he? I think, think so, yeah. I've never, well, I've, never, well, I've, never, I've never read that into it, but I... Uh. I mean, it's nice when friends tell each other they love each other. But, you know, I was watching it through a different lens this time thinking about that it's a very emotional scene when they confess their love for each other yeah um yeah. 
Bear in mind, now there are two reasons for this, but it, make, it makes Axel Foley seem more gay, I think. Bear in mind, Lisa, uh, is it Lisa she's called? Jenny Summers. Jenny, Jenny was, introdu- was, was introduced in the script to be Sylvester Stallone's love interest. Jenny yeah. goes back to Axel Foley's room with him, and he's busy ordering room service while she's lying on his bed. In any other film, they would be having sex, but they can't because Axel's gay. Axel loves Mikey. Axel's lost the love of his life. Wow, uh, this is a brand new reading on Beverly Hills Cop for me. I'd never considered. They that. go to a strip club. Axel's camping it up, man. I... What's he up to in that strip club? Oh my god! I wrote down <laughs> in my notes. So you, do you think he's a closeted gay man? Because but I wrote I, down I, in my notes, I hate the my dick's hard, my dick's. Hard. I hate that bit of improv. I've never liked it. I yeah. think it's it's really crass. But if we're going with your reading of this, like he's overcompensating because he doesn't want people to and know. There, there might be some self hatred there because obviously when he does an impression of a gay man later in the film, it's deeply offensive, and he talks about him having STDs and yeah, all that. Remarkable. I mean, I guess the reason that, that 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 changed with the Jenny character is because I'm sure the studio executives were saying we can't have a black hero having sex with a white woman. It's 1984. The world isn't ready for this. People will not see this film. And so that's why it's removed from the film, because Eddie Murphy's this weirdly sexless movie star, Mm -hmm. isn't he, throughout the 80s? But also, it just means that I think it feels like stuff can have a double meaning, particularly with the the stuff with Mikey. (sighs) Although it would have been very different if this had been the case in the Stallone version, because do you know who was playing Mikey in that version? Go on. Frank Stallone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of course I, I will say I think James Russo is it James Russo James Russo is really good as Mikey yeah he's great he seems he seems cool he seems tough he seems like he might be a little bit on the edge yeah yeah but he seems vulnerable as well exactly yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so uh, here we go our old friend <laughs> dead shark eyed Banks <laughs> Jonathan Banks with his dead eyes. Oh my god! Up. This scene terrified me when I was a kid. I'd forgotten just how violent this execution is. I think it's because he's nice to because we like we, we like Mikey in the space of two minutes. Mm. He seems sweet. He seems like a sweet I man, know, even though say. he's a creep. Yeah, and he's nice to him. He makes him think it's he's going to be a white friends friendship. to him. It's that fake friendship oh. that like oh come here you just don't do it all that oh little tyke and then bang evil bang in the back of the head and you see it like full frame. It's like poof. <laughs> um, so, obviously, <laughs> this ain't going to wash with Axel. He's going to use his vacation. You can't see me doing inverted commas. Vacation time. Uh, so, time for some Patty LaBelle. Stir it up. Oh, stir it up. Stir it up. Uh, this is repeated a couple of times in the film. And that lyric, I mean, it's a direct lyric. Axel is there to stir things up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's perfect. Moving the plot on. But, it's, but it's great. It's, it's that, as you said, it's the second montage, but it's directly conflicting with the first montage. Yeah, you've got Cartier, Rolls Royce, like rich people set against the poverty we saw in Detroit earlier. Uh, it's the hotel from Pretty Woman, the Wiltshire Hotel uh, in Beverly Hills. They call it the Beverly Palm here. Yeah, they do. And uh, already, I, I don't know whether I sort of thought this was going to happen. Or it's because I've seen it before, but you just cannot wait to see Axel start fucking with these people. No, and it feels like, you know, I don't think they probably had to change the script all that much. Mm. Because you just have these scenes and say to Eddie Murphy, look, at the beginning and the end of the scene, do your thing. We'll have plot in the middle, Mm. but you just have to interact with all these people and do what you do best. Mm. It's so, I mean, there's so many 
very, very, very clever lines in amongst sort of the bigger, sillier <laughs> stuff. Like the fact that she's saying no to someone on the phone who's persisting that they want a room. And as she hangs up, before he launches into his scam, <laughs> he goes, the nerve of some people, huh? What a beautiful well, it, way in. It shows how clever he is because he knows that there are no reservations and no rooms. So mm. he, he uses that to his advantage. So he's already showing that he's the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And now we get our first big bit of Murphy doing his thing as Axel Foley. He's pretending to be a reporter from Rolling Stone. He's writing an article called Michael Jackson sitting on top of the world. Uh, funny, because in 1983, uh, the year before this came out, Playboy ran an article called Eddie Murphy is on top of the world. Mm, nice. Self-referential, self-referential. Uh, and he gets the room uh, $235 a night his face is priceless that stare yeah he just can't compute I just write that down that's my favourite bit of the scene is just he doesn't do anything he mm. just sort of it's a deadpan look ahead mm. and it's, 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 his timing is immaculate <laughs> Inflation corner, co- no, inflation corner. Uh, Two hundred thirty-five dollars a night in nineteen eighty-four for a suite mm. at the Wiltshire Hotel. Uh, now six hundred thirty dollars. Wow. I mean, two hundred thirty-five would still be a lot for me these days. Too much. I don't. I don't do hotel rooms like you do. I don't think. Uh, only, only on work trips. Believe me. Uh, you know, I've got a tent that I take with me. Otherwise, I love it when he walks past those guys in the leather yeah. outfits and just laughs. Another self-referential joke, of course, because yeah. he wore that outfit on stage for Delirious. Delirious. Yeah. Yep. Brilliant. Delirious. Unwatchable now. I. I. I've. Raw is the one that I remember watching. I don't remember Delirious so so well. Is it not good no more? Um, well, his humour, his stand-up humour, he would do 20 minutes uh, anti-gay material. Right. And it's a weird thing. You did wonder why he was so obsessed with um, this stuff, which, again, makes it kind of strange when you look at Axel Foley being yeah. who he is. Um, <laughs> we might be about to meet the only actor better and funnier than Eddie Murphy in this movie right after this break. (laughs) How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So he's off to Jenny Summers Art Galleries, Axel, and who should he meet but Serge? Oh my God. Um, Bronson Pinchot is the actor. Mm-hmm. He is just phenomenal. So let me just set the scene. There were meant to be two actors in this art gallery scene. The other actor who you see Serge talk about his chest hair and his undone shirt, there was meant to be a lot more of him. The minute Martin Brest saw Bronson Pinchot's impression of Serge, he was like, everything revolves around you in this scene. I think it is so generous of Eddie Murphy in this scene to just set up his like other actor, Bronson Pinchot, to just sort of go, I, I want this movie to be funny. Yeah. I don't have to be the funniest person in every scene because he's fantastic. But also Eddie Murphy was struggling in this scene. They said it's the only time where he was trying not to laugh because that's not normal for him. He doesn't have that issue normally. But yeah, and it was... <laughs> Mr. Ahmed Farley. <laughs> ah, well. Um, he came up with the character himself, uh, Pinchot. He said it was based on the Beverly Hills shop assistants you meet where you can't really figure out where they're from. <laughs> and I don't know if that's racist. But um, yeah, the way he says cocktail... Uh, Get sexy. the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. This is a very important piece. I'm serious. I say it myself. Uh, yeah, a little lemon twist. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't know we were going to be doing this scene a month ago, uh, this film. I, I watched that scene twice in a row on YouTube the other day because it was just, it's such a joy. And it's such a weird thing as well because, you know, I'm watching this film in the mid to late 80s when off the back of it, Bronson Pinchot gets his own sitcom playing this character. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's called Balky in it, right. but he's doing the accent and he's from somewhere in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's weird looking back on it. <laughs> and, he, and he's in New York and it's Balky. He's a, he's a shepherd from this country. Oh. And I mean, it's terrible. But I mean, that is, that is shooting your shot. He literally had a sitcom built around three minutes in a movie. It's good. It's a good three minutes. It's, a, it's an immaculate three minutes. Not as funny when he returns in Cop 3. Oh, yeah. Do you know what? I have little to no memory. I remember something in a theme park end scene. That's it. That's all I know. I agree. But I did this week watch watch his scene online. It was like, yeah, even that's not working as well. Uh, And to go from this absolutely hilarious, and this is why Murphy is so good, because forget just the fact for a moment that he is a brilliant improviser, one of the funniest people on the planet at this point at his absolute peak and the fact that he knows when to bring the drama he knows when to Mm. act because we go from that surge scene straight into mikey's dead with jenny 
and there's no jokes, and he's serious, no. and he delivers, and he delivers on the drama because he's a brilliant actor as well as a brilliant comedian. Yeah. But it's the intelligence that he has to know what a scene requires from him. Yep. Uh, that actress, Lisa Albacker, though, said she really struggled because everyone was cast when Stallone was in this movie. Mm. And so she, my character, she said, was, was Axel Foley's love interest. She said, now I didn't know what I was playing. I'm, I'm his friend. Like, I don't know who I am to this man. Uh-huh. And so it, it is a strange relationship the two of them have. Um, sure, I like it because it is so refreshing. I mean, I hadn't looked at it the way you looked at it, but like, I, I love the fact that there's this, it's like a school friend, there's someone they went yeah. to school together with, and it's like... I, yeah, it's it, quite sweet. It works for me as a relationship, reconnecting with an sure. old friend over the loss it, of another it's friend. It's just so unusual in this genre. Yeah. And, 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 and um, you know, Eddie Murphy did it, and then Will Smith did it, and, and you don't know whether that's the actor thinking, I need to sort of... I don't know, have, have myself have PG-related relationships with white women or whether it's the studio going, we're not going to sure. take this chance, which sure. is grim. Yes, it is. Uh, do you know who else is grim? <laughs> Victor Maitland. Oh, Stephen Burkhoff. Wow. Mm. Wow. I genuinely watched this and on, on this watch went, I think Anthony Hopkins probably borrowed a bit of this for Silence of the Lambs. It's very funny you say that because I think that Alan Rickman borrowed a lot of this for Hans Gruber. I think this very calm, cool, collected, well-spoken businessman who's evil under the surface and he snaps at one point in the film and I thought, Hans Gruber owes a lot to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, how How does Axel get to see him? He delivers fake flowers. And they, they're like, yeah, no, I'll take them up. He's like, no, floral delivery is my life. <laughs> so he's going to take them up. And this scene when they meet, it's just, it's wonderful. You can see Eddie Murphy, you, you, the way that Axel's face, he's just working it out. He's like, he doesn't know when he walks in that room if this is his guy. And he's just watching him mm. and watching everything he says mm. and listening to his words. And he doesn't say anything. He's still, he's so still just watching. And you're like... He's working out, and by the time, I mean, <laughs> Is it, don't you think his clothes his clothes are giving him away? I mean, I'm I'm wearing a villain's out. What am I wearing? Yeah, literally, like I said at the start, he's dressed like the Death Star. Is it is it a, a robe, a kimono? <laughs> what is he wearing? It's a, it's your eighties villain attire. He went right. to the eighties villain shop on Hollywood Boulevard, right. and he was like, "Look, I'm the bad guy. What have you got? We've got this grey thing from a sci fi movie. Do you want to borrow it?" So yeah. Um, I, I think it's. It, it, I, I like the fact he presses a button. The guys turn up and mm. throw Axel mm. out of a window. I didn't expect them to throw him out of the window. Didn't remember that bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. Apart from Axel using the N word himself, there's not a lot of race stuff in this movie. But I feel like it's in the background. So if that's a white guy that's thrown out of there, he's probably not getting arrested. Sure. But because it's because it's Axel Foley, he is getting arrested. And I love I love him not resisting arrest. I mean, it happens too many times. I think it's intentional as well. I mean, you look at the two cops who pick him up off the side. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're two Aryans, aren't Aryan, they? Aryan, beautiful, yeah. like, uh, yeah, like, uh, but I, I, I do think plot-wise, let's just focus on the plot for a moment, I do think if there was any doubt in Foley's mind about whether Victor was responsible, having him press a button, mm. six men throw him through a window, you're pretty certain after that. I mean, he's yeah. basically, Victor's gone... Yeah, I'm the bad guy. I think these two films could be slightly improved if there was an element of mystery in either of them. Uh-huh. But we're going to both of them with it established from the beginning who the bad guys are, which is like, well, so we're ahead of the, the, the protagonist, which isn't as much fun sometimes as going on the journey with them. Um, Foley, 
looking around the police car and you're waiting. And I couldn't remember what the line was, but you're just watching him and you're just going, what is he going to say? It's like, it's that exciting to watch him in these scenes. What is he going to say? And when he looks around, you know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. It's just a great line. Yeah, you like that line. I love that line. Mm-hmm. Hey, I also like, I've never been in a cell that has a phone in it. Can I stay for a while? Because I ordered some pizza. <laughs> <clears throat> it's, um, it's great. So let's meet Taggart and Rosewood. Um, so, we're in the Beverly Hills Police Station now. Now, the real Beverly Hills Police would not allow them access to their HQ, so they just built a set that was the exact opposite of the Detroit Police Station we saw at the start, and Martin Brest based his design on his unused NORAD design from War Games, which he'd been fired from. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he was fired from Oh, that's War funny, because it, it, it could be a certain War Games. Yes. It's, what is that? It's exactly. like, we're in the future? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he basically said, I spent so much time designing Norad and War Games that I then got fired from, that I wasn't going to let it go to waste, so mm. I built it here as the Beverly Hills awesome. Police Station. When are we doing War Games? Oh, man. I want to. Let's do it soon. So Martin Brest describes Taggart and Rosewood as basically Laurel and Hardy. Mm. Uh, They're brilliantly cast, aren't they? Oh, so uh, good. I don't, you know, obviously Judge Reinhold we grew up with a little bit. John Ashton, I don't know that well. But um, yeah, that's one of the big things you remember as a kid is just how funny those two are. Uh, they were looking for the ultimate stiff uh, for Rosewood. And it was the brilliant director, Amy Heckling, who suggested Judge Reinhold is the ultimate stiff. Uh, and that's how he got the gig. He said on his first day of shooting, Don Simpson showed him his trunk full of automatic weapons. <laughs> he loved his guns. He loved his guns. Template for life. Yeah. So initially you're like, oh, I'm not sure about Taggart because he punches he Foley, mm. um, which is like, oh my God. Yeah, I'd like to go back and watch that for the first time. Because now we, he's this lovable guy. Yep. And I think maybe if you, if the first time you watch this film, you think he's a wrong one. And well, he's a wrong one. I mean, you can't punch yeah, You, you can't, can't punch pr- it. But it's there so that Eddie can then not press charges. Axel can not press charges. Exactly. It's Ronnie. teaching us that these guys do it by the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Eddie is a maverick. Do you know why it teaches that? Because Ronnie, so- Ronnie Cox <laughs> says, we go strictly by the book. Yeah. In Beverly Hills. Bogomil. What a weird name. I love it. Lieutenant Bogomil. Uh, yeah. But yeah, our second Ronnie Cox. Uh, this is in a couple of weeks. This is this is where I start to think demolition man. I never I never joined the dots before. Okay. But it's the whole thing of like you know streetwise cop in perfect precinct where everyone's nice. We do things by the book. Right. These are rules. Everyone's nice. The world yep. is beautiful. And he's like, what the fuck is this place? Good point, Alex. So. Uh, I don't buy that Inspector Todd knows he's in California, but is giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's on holiday. Whatever. Well, yeah, he had one more chance. He was set that up at the start, so he's got one and a half more well, chances. Well, no I, think, no, I think he knows what he's doing. I think he is being slyly f- a mm. friend to him here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, because I like Inspector Todd. Yeah, because um, he's, he's, he is his, like, he feels like it's his dad, really, isn't it? Um, I'm unclear if he's been charged or not. He's supposed to get out of the police station because he hasn't been charged, but then Jenny Summers has to bail him out. Not sure what that means, but uh, she does deliver that line to perfection where he says, is this your car? And she says, no, in Beverly Hills, we just take whichever car's closest. <laughs> yeah, Great, great line. Um, he orders the food for Billy and Taggart, and then Damon Wyans makes his film debut, uh, giving mm. him the bananas. Yeah, but, camp, camping it up big time. Mm. That was originally a potato, you know. Yeah, they, they changed it. They didn't have time to film the scene where he goes into the kitchen to steal a potato. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> you don't, I, I, the film hasn't lost a star because they didn't have the potato scene. Uh, 
Axel and Jenny check out the first of 27 warehouses. Oh, my, I've written that. I've written warehouse, warehouse, warehouse. It's such a boring set as well for people to explore, isn't it? Yeah, um, I do like the fact that the guys with the Barabons, they give the henchmen some small talk. Like, it's nice. It sort of adds a little bit of realism. Uh, we see Billy, how he's naive and childlike when Ronnie Cox is having a go at him about the shrimp sandwich and the fact that the other cops make fun of Billy with the anti-banana disguise. Now, initially, I was like, ugh, that's rubbish. But it's there because you immediately see long-suffering Taggart. It's like he not only has to deal with Billy, yeah. but he has to deal with the fact that within the department, people know his partner's an idiot. And so yeah. by association, he's an idiot, yet he sticks by Billy. So it makes Taggart nicer. No, sure. Just come up with a better gag than a, a <laughs> banana glasses. But um, no, the idea, you, you know, you say Laurel and Hardy, but really the, the, what they were going for was that um, Rosewood is the overly concerned wife hmm. and Taggart is the henpecked husband. And that's why he's talking about about the red meat and the coffee. And that's that's the key to those characters. It's husband and wife. So apparently Martin Brest, what he was doing when he was casting those roles, he got different actors, uh, mixed them all up together and was just like, he gave them the same instructions. So all these different actors going for these parts and the instruction he, he gave was, you're a middle-aged couple and you've been married for years improvise and judge reinhold picked up a magazine and did the red meat scene which made it into the movie so guarantee if you made that this movie today you'd have two stand-up comedians playing those roles 100 percent. but because you've got certainly one serious actor uh it, it, that's what makes it work, isn't it? There's a, there's a reality to it that you wouldn't get if it was two guys sitting there doing one-liners and trying to be funny. Yeah, Abs- absolutely, absolutely. Which is why you find actors who are great comic actors like Paul Rudd, who's never done stand-up, you know, he's a great comic actor mm. because there's a sort of... There's a naturalism to it. Is that mm. the right word? Does it, it feels like in tune with the character as opposed to what's the funniest thing I yeah. could say to stand up inside in this moment, even if it doesn't work for the character. Although I started the new series of Only Murders in the Building today and Paul Rudd is in that and he's playing an arsehole. It's really hard to believe Paul Rudd is an arsehole. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a funny arsehole, but still I'm like, no, you're nice. Hey, do you want to go to a strip club, yeah, please? Oh, never not. Can't you refuse? I wish I could. So, uh, Confusion Corner. I watched this whole scene waiting for... This is former President Gerald Ford. Um, uh, I was like, this is the bit where... And there's some hitmen and there's a car crash outside. He's former President Gerald Ford. I was like, wait... I'm watching, what's, and I, honestly, mm. I swore that was going to happen. That's how confusing that's, these two so, movies are. So that's are. the Playboy Mansion, is it in, or is it a Which, strip club in Beverly Hills Cop 2? One of the two. Yeah, yeah it's both, both in Beverly Hills yeah, Cop yeah. 2. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, Nasty Girl is playing, yeah. and uh, that was suggested by the real-life stripper mm. who's dancing on stage called Mouse. Uh, it was going to be a Rick James track. Right. My favourite sketch of all time is the Dave Chappelle, Rick James, Charlie Murphy sketch. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. I haven't. I watch it once a month. <laughs> I'm Rick James, bitch. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, it's there's uh, some guys hustling, trying to rob the place, I guess. And I mean, what is their plan? I'm not I'm, sure. I mean, they're holding up the. They're going to hold up the entire strip club. Yep. I feel. Wait until the end of the night when the punters have gone home and then steal the cash from the register. So, but, I mean, there's a lot of people in there. 
Uh, I don't know. It's 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 purely so that Billy turns up at the eleventh hour and points his gun, and he's like, "Wow, you are some kind of cop." Well, yeah, he's some kind of cop because he noticed the really obvious shotgun under the man's <laughs> overcoat in a strip club. Uh, and now we get uh, the very, 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 very famous super cop speech. And mm. um, so, so many stories around this scene. Now, the obvious ones that you'll know is uh, John Ashton. Uh, when mm. It almost makes it funnier now that you know and you watch it. And when he holds his like the bridge of his nose mm. and puts his head down, and it works in the scene for the character, but he's literally trying everything not to laugh. He's pissed at himself, yeah. Eddie Murphy improvised the whole Super Cops thing, and as the story goes, as we talked about on Monday, Eddie Murphy vehemently anti-drugs, didn't even drink coffee and was very tired on this day of the shoot and someone gave him some coffee that he initially said, no, I don't do coffee. <laughs> I don't do coffee. And then he had some and like it really energised him and based on that energy, he improvised this whole mm. super cops bit. They're not just regular cops, they're super cops and the only thing missing from these guys is the capes. <laughs> and that's when John Ashton looks like he's in pain yep. and Judge Reinhold said uh, he's got his hands in his pockets because he's pinching his thighs. <laughs> Try not to laugh. It's so good. Uh, Ronnie Cox said, though, of working with Eddie Murphy, he said no matter where he goes on the flights of fancy, he always brings it back to where he should be on his line and safely lands the scene for the rest of us, which is great. You know, you see the professionalism. Yeah, I found... um uh, a three and a half hour documentary about action heroes on Amazon over the weekend when I was ill in bed looking for something to watch. And there was an interview about, with Ronnie Cox about this movie. And he said it was such an amazing experience making this movie because this never happens. We were making a movie that we knew we knew every day we walked onto set, we were making a movie that was a hit mm. because of Eddie Murphy. So it was like this yeah. this weird atmosphere on the set. There was no like, oh God, is this gonna is this gonna work? Every actor was like, I'm in a massive fucking movie. What a lovely feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So yeah, you mentioned uh, Eddie. Axel follows Victor to a mansion slash restaurant. Again, I thought it was the Hugh Hefner scene. It's not. That's it. Beverly Hills Cop 2. Um, oh, great line. When he says to the valet, he drives up in his beat-up car, can you put this in a good spot because all this shit happened last time I parked here? And that was that was um, improv because Martin Brest said to Eddie, I've got this scene where you're getting out of a car and walking inside. There's n- we need something to happen. So that's the, that's the brilliant story. That's what's getting you your Oscar nomination. Mm. <laughs> the man making stuff up. We've also, in the background, we've got the plot of the film The Other Guys happening, haven't we? What's that now? Where two new cops are having to tail them. Oh, yeah. Who think they're better than the other cops. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's literally the other guys, just in in, in a five-minute scene. Yeah, I love... Foley and Vic, you've done Ramon uh, and his STDs. Yeah, I don't know if that's aged particularly well. Mm. Um, Martin Bress said again, uh, we had nothing for this scene on the way to set, and so I told Eddie, and he came up with the gay character minutes before. We fell about laughing, we had the scene. I don't think it works today, I think it's a little bit offensive. Yep. Um, Sure, but hey-ho. Yeah. It's all, but also it's it's just this weird undercurrent of, of of gayness in this film because also it's you've got the, the Damon Wayans character, Bronson Pinchot's character. We're not sure what's going on with here. You've got you've got as I said, Murphy and uh, you've got Axel and Mikey. You've got Maitland and Zach, the two villains. What's going on between them two? Mm. They could very easily be together. Oh, yes, I did write that down when he asks him to move later on. He goes, "Could you move your arm, darling?" And you're like, "Interesting yeah. choice of words." Yeah, sure. It's just whether and on it's purpose. It's the bit where he's sitting opposite him, like he's yeah. Victor's doing his work in his office, and that, and then they're having dinner together. It's like, 
All right, you, uh, maybe just, you could be a bodyguard. Sure. Or, it just feels like, you know, we'd say that it just seems to come up a lot in the 80s where there's just feels like there's a subtext mm. rumbling underneath the films. Uh, this uh, entire sequence where he uh, goes into a posh restaurant and kicks up a fuss, borrowed uh, in its entirety by the rather good movie K9. Anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, as I said, I love this confrontation. Mm. Um, Foley basically has just gone there to tell Victor he's going to beat him. Uh, there's no other reason to go there. There's no real mm. plot advance no. in this scene other than no, to and, and make Zach want revenge on him by throwing him across the yeah, table. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's a repetition, isn't it, of, of the scene earlier in the office. Not that much different happens, mm. apart from... Uh, maybe Axel was 99% sure before, now he's 100% sure before. But yeah, when he says it's painfully obvious you haven't a fucking idea who you were dealing with, it's Hans Gruber. It's, it's, it's just Alan Rickman is more charming and likeable than, than um, Burkhoff. But yep. I, I see it and um, I love the death stare that Eddie Murphy gives him because, you know, it's a comedy, but he's still a tough guy and his best friend slash lover has been murdered by this man. So... Yeah, but as I say, the film does feel a bit repetitive because the police are taking Axel Foley away from another place where he's spoken to the villain. Yeah, uh, but what it does give us is an opportunity to see that Bogomil ain't a bad guy. Ronnie Cox here mm. when they're back in the office, he's like, he's like, forget what you can prove. Talk to me. Uh, he's a good guy. Yeah, but Axel in this scene gets worried that Victor will get wind of our investigation. Um, <laughs> what? You, you confronted him twice in this film. Sure, sure. Uh, and then obviously because Bogomil's now a kind of good guy, we need a bigger bad uh, or a bigger, more efficient part of the machine. Who is this fucking guy? He's, what? He's the, the he's Bogomil's boss. It sort of just keeps it's getting... It's just weird. He shows up with his big glasses. Yeah. And, oh, who are you? I don't remember you. Yeah, Why are you yeah, in yeah. this film? Yeah, uh, the rolled up papers in his hand. That's actually the script uh, that he was right. given that day because they just changed his line. So he was just, just learning he's them. He's just a weird little man. I just don't know what he's doing in this movie. Yeah, he calls Rosewood Rosemont. Uh, that was an accident in a rehearsal that they kept in the movie. Uh, so, yeah... Um, He's, uh, Jenny joins Billy and Axel now to check out the warehouse. Yeah, I like that Jenny's got a bit about her. She's not just a damsel in distress. No. She, and he says, you're not coming with us. And she's like, I am. Mm -hmm. And so she does become a big part of this now. And I, I, I like that aspect of it. Um, I also like the fact that Axel calls Billy a Beverly Hills cop. Always good when you say the title <laughs> in your movie. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, Victor catches Jenny and Axel in the warehouse while mm. they're looking for drugs. Well, they find drugs. Yep. What was it with Don Simpson? I mean, talk about hiding in plain sight. <laughs> He's doing more cocaine than anyone in the history of the world yep. and making movies about that cocaine and mm. it being a crime and people being imprisoned or shot for it. What a piss take. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Again, you got to read high concept. It goes from like, whoa, this actually sounds like loads of fun to, oh, he stopped going out and just stayed oh. in and did it on his own. Right, that's not... That's yeah, not, no, I am joking about yeah. that book. I mean, it's grim. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, it is. Uh, so, yeah, Victor turns up. Oh, how nice. I do like surprises, Clarice. Uh, <laughs> brilliant line. Uh uh, what do you think uh, Vicky, our former co-host, uh, would uh, make of Judge Reinhold's face acting when he's watching the villains going in and out of the warehouse? Oh, he doesn't I, say a word. I've, ri I've written down, gives good stressed face. <laughs> um, I don't know. I tell Vicky that you should never judge Reinhold. Oh, good. What? Good. What? Yeah, I've done it before. Always be working. Always working. 
Uh, so, yeah, Billy calls it in. Taggart, Billy's doing something dumb again, said with affection, though. Yeah, and he, he grabs it. a fucking massive shotgun. Yeah. Come on, Taggart. He's off to get his wife. So you said this is the commando mansion. I'm not sure it is. I I was told it was uh, by uh, Stephen D'Souza. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Uh, it's, it's I, it I know him. it's Bugsy Siegel's old mansion. I, I heard I, it was Harold Lloyd's old that's mansion. That's the commando mansion. That's this mansion. No, this is Bugsy Siegel's old mansion. Are you sure? I'm, I remember watching it going, that looks like the commando mansion, and I'm pretty certain I read somewhere that it was. But, hey... You know, agree to disagree. Yeah. Only one of us is right, but agree to disagree. Sure, it's not opinion-based, it's fact-based. Agree to disagree. Fight! 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 Yeah. I'm not going to... I mean, I like it. To, I want it to be the Commander Mansion because it means that they were both rescuing, rescuing someone called Jenny, <laughs> which kind of makes a, yeah. a nice connection. Probably isn't. Uh, <laughs> Billy and Taggart can't get over a wall. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, it's almost too slapsticky in, in quite a violent scene. Also, I feel like this is the scene that everyone spoofs in those cop spoofs when the, the henchmen can't shoot straight. Yeah. Because sure. it's ridiculous the firepower they've got and how bad they are at, at hitting these targets mm. that aren't moving that fast. Uh, Bogomil says he's got some undercover officers at the location. He's already covering for them. They're not undercover mm. officers. He's a good guy. He's a good guy, he's Ronnie Cox. Uh, I love, I mean, Billy standing up. Police officers, you're all under arrest. You do that again and I'll shoot you myself. They're great together, Taggart and Billy. Um, Zach hunts Foley. He gets shot. Uh, it's great that he looks at Foley. It's, I was hoping it would happen, but after Foley kills Jonathan Banks, Zach, uh, and just before he like keels over and dies, he sees like that Foley has... It's like that moment where I got you because mm. you killed my... Best friend slash lover, undecided. Yep. Yep. Brilliant. Uh, I do like the. I do. Like, I don't know why I love the Butch and, Butch and Sundance comparison. It's just because it's funny. Because yeah. we, I guess we all know the reference. They don't have to explain it, do they? Yeah. Um, police car pile up. There's a couple of Blues oh, Brothers scenes in this film, aren't there? The, the opening and closing. It's feeling very Blues Brothers. Of which, if you'd heard that episode, I'm not a fan of the police par- car pile up. I know you are. I am. And so it's annoying that you weren't. We did say acknowledge on the episode. It's annoying Alex isn't here to defend this film because he does love it. I but, do love it. But yeah, watching cars crash into each other i don't know it doesn't do it for me it, i mean i will say it doesn't work here no i think it's here i mean it's just weird because it's two henchmen who we've only just met who like mm. are in a van it's like we don't know them and there's a whole sequence where they get blocked I'm, Is it i them assume saying- it's there to say axel's on his own because the police have been stuck in the drive by this pileup so it's going to take them a while to get to him so he's just, just doesn't seem have- necessary it strikes me someone did a big line of cocaine and said we've got 100 grand spare what can we do with it <laughs> i know i just saw the blues brothers yeah so uh, victor shoots foley and then foley kills victor um, and Ronnie Cox kills Victor. I can't remember. By this point, I'm sort of winding down. Uh, they both do. They Got both it. shoot. They shoot him at the same time, which is quite a nice Got touch. You. Yeah. And in the end, all these bickering people, they're on the same team. Bogomil's arc, he goes from being by the book to breaking the yeah, rules he to lit- do the right he thing. He does his own version of the Super Cop speech, yeah. which he told Axel off for. <laughs> and Taggart does the right thing. He agrees with uh, Bogomil. Bogomil's even going to sort out Inspector Todd for Foley. Oh, and uh, that's enough for the chief, the guy who you don't know who he is, but comes in and basically yes. goes, okay then, give me that report in the morning. Thank <laughs> you very much. He's called Inspector Todd, by the way. I did look it up. Go, fuck no, off. Inspector Todd oh, is, sorry. is his 
Detroit. Uh, All right. The Detroit. I, I, I wrote down what this guy's called. Maybe I deleted it because I was so annoyed with him. <laughs> I, oh, no, I've just written old man shows up again. Chief Hubbard. Chief Hubbard. I did write it down. You did, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a bit in the hotel, the handing out of robes. Mm, you're going to think about me dripping wet. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, Axel. Okay, whatever you're into, dude. Sure, sure. Uh, and that's pretty much it. We get a freeze frame at the end that Martin Brest, the director, was like, I do not want a freeze frame. Um, but Don Simpson, he ends his movies with a freeze frame. You don't, have, you don't get a say. It's a freeze frame or you're out. But in the end, it came down to the scene with Victor Maitland and Jenny in the art gallery. Simpson and Bruckheimer, they weren't keen on it. They didn't want it in. Martin Brest felt it was important because it establishes Victor's real villainy and threat and nastiness. And the exchange was Martin Brest got to keep the scene if he ended on a freeze frame. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> um, they say they're going for a drink, though. He knows the perfect place. Where do you think they're going? Are they going back to the strip club? Uh, to watch Mouse dancing to, to Nasty Mouse. Girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I think that's meant to be the joke. It's like, remember when I took you to that place before? Mm. We're going there again. We had such a good time. And end scene. Mm. Right. So, uh, I, I don't... Beverly Hills Cop 2 is fine, but it's such a retread of this to the point that, like, his friend gets shot at the start of the film and he has to come and investigate that. It just goes over old ground. Where it's better is because Rosewood and Taggart are established as his friends from the beginning. It's lovely. They go fishing together. There's a photo of them on a desk, the four of them, uh, with the chief all going fishing together. Wow, I don't remember that. But, um, but yeah, so that's good. And, and like the way I said, Lethal Weapon 2 is good because they're not bickering at the beginning. You've, you've threw all that. But then it just felt like a massive retread and you didn't have just that shock value, that surprise of what this was. It felt a bit... Like a like, like it was done. To so me. for whatever reason, Beverly Hills Cop Two is the one I've revisited more. Sure, so I've seen that over and over again, and I haven't revisited this for a very very long time. So uh, watching this, I was it was only on this watch of this that I was like. Oh, it's the play by match. Oh no, that's Beverly Hills. And then I realised just how similar so many of the because we did are. discuss just to say we did discuss maybe doing one versus two. And you you said you think you like two better, but I, even if it's marginally better, I just think there's a freshness to this that's a lot more interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see. We've got a new one coming soon. Yes, we Beverly do. Hills Cop Axel yeah, Foley. It's called. Yeah, but it was gonna. I thought because Paramount have basically gone. It's not for us, which is always worrying. It's Netflix. Netflix have, have got it, but initially it was going to be Paramount. It was going to be on the big screen, and now mm-hmm. it's gone to Netflix. Which yep. is well, fine, fine. But everyone's back. Everyone's back. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it'd be you, weird because everyone's so old now, won't it? it which is exactly my problem with everything. It's, it like, it's like this is this. There's a nostalgia attached to yeah. this. It's like it's it's like Indiana Jones. It's like do you do you need to see that I, character again at this I, at this time in your life? How much is it trampling on your memories? It, it, it'll be interesting to see what lessons they've learned from Beverly Hills Cop Three because I don't think anyone enjoyed making that, and mm. it was obviously hated. Outright, and so I just hope that, you know that they've pulled it back round rather than just repeating themselves. Yep, yep. Right, let's do the bits. Best scene, Chris. Surge. Yeah, right. Got the same answer. It's just mm. something electrifying about those two together in that scene. On on this watch, if I'm honest, it was John Ashton cracking up because I hadn't noticed that before, Uh and I did watch that twice in a row. But yeah, because a month ago I was watching Surge on YouTube, it's got to be Surge. Fantastic scene, just fantastic. Uh, Most valuable whatever. Well, obviously this week, you know, it would be easy for us to pick Eddie Murphy twice, Mm. and it's 
of it's the it's the right decision. So I'm not going to be obvious. I'm going to say Harold Faltermeyer okay. because Axel F really makes this movie motor. It's so enjoyable to listen to, and it's such a great match of a theme tune with a character. It ups the cool level of this film by about 10%. I used to listen to that song over and over on cassette. I was mm. obsessed and it, and with it. And it made you feel cool listening to it. It made me it. feel like Axel Foley. I, I used to walk around thinking I was as cool as Axel Foley when I had that on my Sony Walkman. Uh, I am going to be obvious and say Eddie Murphy. I almost wrote Bronson Pinchot, but I can't because it's Eddie's, it's Eddie's movie. It's, it's, it's all about him. It wouldn't be the same film without him in it. It wouldn't be a film. Mm. Like, it, there's, there, this is, there's <coughs> nothing there but a rote action movie without Eddie Murphy. So I'm going to do the obvious thing. Uh, what would you change? Uh, I showed my working out earlier, so I'm annoyed with myself. But yeah, reveal the villain later in the movie. I think have them doing some detective work to find him and then let's lose that repetition of him facing off with Victor twice and being thrown out twice. It's the same scene twice. So you need to get rid of the first one, only have it happen once and have it revealed halfway through the film, maybe. But like, it's a quarter of the way in. Mm. Um. My, I showed my working out as well, so we're both in the same boat. It's the wall joke. Uh, I just, I, I can't deal with, I, it just, it ruins, it doesn't ruin them. It doesn't ruin them, that's an overstatement. But Taggart and Billy trying to get over that wall, it, it's just, they're good cops. And it's sort of like, it's, it's, I understand why it's there. It's like Martin Bress is like, you're Laurel and Hardy. What do they do? They do silly stuff mm. like this. And they've put it in and I don't know. I'm, I'm not a fan. Uh, but that's all I can really fault this movie for. I was really taken with it again. So, here we are. That's it. We need Vicky to say the verdict now. Mm. Vicky. Mm. Fucking hell, Vicky. Forgot it again. It's time for the verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! Who wants to go first? I actually have a vote from Vicky, so if it's a draw... Yes, yeah, so do I. Oh. <laughs> what if she told us different things? <laughs> well, she's fucking with us. What if she knew I was going to pretend she'd been fired because of what she did the other day? <laughs> Um, uh, I'll go first so um, mm. I found it tough Mm. tougher than I thought Um, because I think 48 Hours is a groundbreaking movie in so many ways and it introduced Eddie Murphy uh, onto cinema screens and you know you, you see a star is born in watching 48 Hours I do think Nolte and Murphy are great together I do like the buddy cop element, the bickering odd couple cops that Beverly Hills Cop doesn't have. It's the Eddie Murphy show, which is a different vehicle. I do like two people, the, you know, the conflict therein. But the best bits of 48 Hours are all of Beverly Hills Cop because the best bits of 48 Hours are Eddie Murphy doing Eddie Murphy, doing Axel Foley, doing Reggie Hammond. So Beverly Hills Cop gets my vote. Chris. Um, as a star vehicle, Beverly Hills Cop is great. As a movie, it's not It's not great, I don't think. I think 48 Hours might be a better film, but I can't believe the Nick Nolte character got away with what he said then, let alone now. I, I prefer the tougher attitude of that movie, but these films are supposed to be entertainment, and having our hero constantly call our other hero, the N-word, makes it really tough to watch. Yep. You know, I, I actually think it spoils the film. Because I want to have fun and I want to be entertained by these movies. That's what this genre is all about. And Beverly Hills Cop does that from start to finish, minute one to minute 90. So I'm going for Beverly Hills Cop as well. OK, what did Vicky say to you? Beverly Hills Cop. She did to me as well. OK, so that's four votes for Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> in a clash of the title. But it was close. It was close, wasn't it? It was close. Yeah. It, was very, it, is, it was very close. And I do agree with you. I think as a movie, as a story, as... as the, 
there's an identity that 48 hours has beyond its star like which mm. is like you know there is a real movie in there and uh, you know it's uh, Beverly Hills Cop's brilliant but it is go out there and make a scene work Eddie and he does repeatedly mm. but that is that's a star not a movie it's just a joy to it mm. there's a joy to it yeah yeah so our winner on Clash of the Titles this week in 48 Hours versus Beverly Hills Cop is a Beverly Hills Cop. But don't forget, you can have your say about how right or wrong we got it when the poll goes up on Twitter. The listener poll will be going up on Twitter at ClashPod very soon. So next week, the clue Chris gave on Monday. What are we doing next week, Chris? These movies really grind my gears. Really grind Chris's gears. What could they be? What could they be? We are doing Death Proof and Planet Terror. Isn't it Planet Terror versus Death Proof? Didn't we'll figure it out. Well, we, I have to say what we're doing on Monday. We were doing one of Death Proof and Planet Terror. Whichever came first in the Grindhouse double bill. I think it was Planet Terror. So let's just say Planet Terror for the moment, just because people might not want to watch both movies over the weekend. They might want to watch one movie over the weekend and one midweek next week. So, on, okay, not, we have to fact-check everything. Chris is just uh, double-checking right now. I'm pretty sure Planet yeah, Terror... Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it looks like it is. It yeah, is, yeah. Planet Terror. You. I'm pretty... I'm, well, so I was right. Yes, you uh, are right. Yes. No, thank you. That was nice. It was, well just, played. It was nice that you said that. Uh, right then. So on Monday, we are doing Planet Terror. Then on Thursday next week, we are doing Death Proof. That is our pairing for next week. Don't forget, if you haven't done already, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Have a lovely, lovely weekend. Bye-bye. Clash of the Titles is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 